You know, I am, I'm very privileged to be on this journey with you guys. It's been, uh, it's been 25 years, it'll be 26 years actually this year that we went out to New Jersey and uh, all I knew it was the Garden State, that's about all I knew. And flew into Newark <laughs> and I said, Lord, you tricked me. But, uh, you know, it has been a, such a, a blessing and an adventure. But I am just so privileged to be a part of this. You know, I got trained with uh, Raul Reese and, you know, just seeing him get passionate about ministry. I had shared with him, and I was getting teary-eyed, too, after his message that, look, you know, the thing that I needed, this cold German, you know, white guy, I needed that passion. And God knew exactly what I needed. needed no, he knew what I needed to develop in. And I, I praise God for my five years there. Of course, Rawls said it was originally going to be six months. He's six months, we're going to send you out. And uh, five years later, I'm part of the furniture. And then eventually, just the Lord put it on my heart. Not go back to Michigan, where I was from, but to go to New Jersey. And the Lord just opened some great doors. We've uh, Having Chuck out for the 25th was just very special. Uh, you know, the radio station is just cranking. And God's just amazing in all those things. Pray, pray for my daughter right now. She's due yesterday. For our third grandchild, and I'm praying, you know, I really, I, I, she, she doesn't want me to pray against her, but I was praying that it waits until I get back, and she said, no, don't do that to me, Dad. But uh, pray for her that everything goes smooth. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 15. We, um, I, I approach this passage, honestly, with a lot of fear and trembling. This is, uh, this is a challenge of a passage. And the reason is because... You can have contentions just over this passage on contentions. You're going you're gonna to see how this unfolds. Notice what happens. It's a very familiar, you guys know. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas was determined, read, determined, to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted, read, insisted, that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention, the Greek word paroxysm, became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Exciting ministry in the early church. Holy Spirit present. Yet still, these two heavyweights could not come to an agreement on the com composition of a missions team. An unsettling conflict, painful, yet often seen not just in the pages of Scripture, but also in church history. There are many examples of this. It's a family thing, too. Barnabas and John Mark, were told in Colossians, were cousins. Barnabas wanted to take him. I mean, you know, listen, never go against the family. We understand that in the, the East Coast, the Italians. We get that. And it is a strong thing, sometimes to break into it. I know some of those that are in Ireland and, you know, they were their strong family units. Uh, sometimes the whole church can divide just over what happens to one family. Paul was just as adamant that they not take John Mark. He deserted them when it got tough. In Acts 13, it describes this. and uh, The mission, in his mind, was way too important to have a known weak link. Who was right? You know, in fact, this is the interesting thing. This is really the point. 
Bible does not directly say who is right. We can infer some things. And I know that there have been some contentions with people who over, over just who was right in this debate. Because depending on your gifts, you, the way you view ministry, the way you perceive, and by the way, all fellowship is revolved around sharing perceptions, right? I mean, we have fellowship with the Father and the Son when we walk in the light and he shares perceptions with us and we share with him our heart. There's fellowship with the Father and the Son. When we fellowship with each other, there's shared perceptions. But you see, we don't always perceive things the same way. So we share that. How we handle each other's perception is very important. Now, cutting to the chase, we know John Mark eventually got his act together. Apparently, Barnabas did have some encouragement to him. And eventually, Paul came to accept him and appreciate him and need him, find him useful for ministry. So I just look at this text and think there's some things we can glean, I believe, very powerfully uh, to deal with the contentions, disagreements, and disputes we all have in our church because, well, you know, it's normal. That's the first principle. It's normal to disagree. In fact, it's kind of weird if you had to agree on everything. Cults essentially thrive on this. They can't deviate a little tiny bit off, otherwise you're out of the picture. You have to agree with everything. It's a forced unity. It's not really unity. It's a different kind of thing. Unity, true unity, is based upon a willingness to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. But a forced unity is not the same. So it's normal to disagree. There was a time, of course, there was one will, God's, that he created Adam and Eve and brought them together. They became one flesh, then sin entered the picture, and now we have close to seven billion wills in the world. And as I look at this issue here, I think about how sin entered the world and death through sin, yet through grace, the Lord found a way to restore his banished ones, and we're saved. Now, we learn quickly, however, that this new life takes some time to work out the old man. It doesn't happen automatically. We discover his will and our will and other wills don't always coincide. And, you know, there is places on the earth, however, that perfect peace abides, perfect harmony between people, absolutely no disagreements, contentions, or anything of that nature. We call them cemeteries. If you're breathing, this passage is going to have application. Now, previously in this chapter, they already dealt with one issue, circumcision in the church. And and the Holy Spirit was in the center of it. It seemed good to them to come up with the simple constraints for the Gentiles so as to foster fellowship between Jew and Gentile. And, of course, then there was, you know, the conflict before that and the widows in Acts chapter 6. Again, avoiding any dissenting voices or pretending they're not there and walking on eggshells, you know, to get along with people, I don't believe is the answer. I think the key is that both in Paul and Barnabas' life, they had a, a very different way of looking at what was coming ahead. And if you listen just to one side, you could pretty much say, well, you know, what, what's happened here? You know, Paul and Barnabas are disagreeing on this, but, well, Barnabas... We already know his name was Joseph originally. He got the name Barnabas because he was called the son of encouragement. 
and you know the type, that there are people that have that sensitivity to where people are. You know, someone comes into church and they're real kind of like a little bit flustered and these people with that gift just just go to that person. They immediately know they're a visitor. Hey, how you doing? Kind of pull them into their group and get them plugged in. Barnabas actually did this with Paul the Apostle. When no one wanted to come near Paul, Barnabas was there. They were afraid of Paul. They thought he was a spy. And when he, got, when he found the Lord, I mean, they're like, hey, we don't, we don't trust this thing. And Barnabas went directly there. You know, he was one of those guys, hey, let's put his armor on Paul, brings him in, gets him plugged in. Then he went and found him in Tarsus later, brought him into ministry, and then they did their missionary work together. It was an amazing relationship between Paul, this fiery guy that just preached the gospel, and Barnabas, this loving, sensitive guy. It was a beautiful combination. In fact, when they ministered at one place, remember that the people called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Paul being the short guy and the spokesman, I suppose. But it was clear that Paul had a calling and anointing upon his life. And here's where it gets sticky. There's now a strong contention, a paroxysm, a disagreement. What side do you take? No, Barnabas, listen, he's all about grace. Come on, the guy blew it. But listen, we can give him another chance, can't we? Isn't forgiveness a cardinal rule in the church, right? You can make that case. But Paul, he is not budging. He will not have it. And yet, isn't he called of God to, you know, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Isn't he called of God? Isn't God's mantle upon him? Isn't that obvious afterwards when he gets sent out? And, and that's a strong case, particularly because I think Paul understands the battle ahead. And it's not long afterwards. You look at chapter 16, they're jailed, they're beaten. They're, I mean, they go through it all. Maybe he spared John Mark another failure. I, I think... Well, if it were me, I'd have to lean, and I think as a pastor, you probably know this, most of you would probably lean toward Paul in this, because you've had guys in your church that are just so sensitive. When someone has done something, they want to restore and bless and encourage, but sometimes you also see there's something sinister there too, or something else has to be taken into consideration. You're going on a mission trip, you cannot take a weak link, they're not quite ready for it, and you make an executive decision, And then you have this contention. And it usually occurs between people that have these different perceptions of ministry. And it's normal. How you deal with it is the question. And I think the first thing is to see it's normal. By the way, I think very important to know if we do know it's normal, we also have to give people the freedom to have a dissenting voice. See, I have people that can push back, that can tell me anything. But then when we go and minister to the body, we're on the same page. Now, this, the strange thing here is, you know, we're told to keep issues between, you know, the Matthew 18 model. If you have an issue, deal with it between you and the brother. Settle it between you two. Don't, don't spread it out there. And that, of course, is a general rule. The odd thing here is God gives us an account of a paroxysm and almost puts us in this place of, well, you know who's right and then doesn't tell you. I think that's very purposeful. See, that's, in fact, the most notable thing in this passage to me. 
The most notable thing is that this did not spread anywhere. It did not turn from a paroxysm, a contention, to a faction. And you know how easily this can happen in your church. So what happened? What was the secret here? How did it keep from going to that next level? How did it keep from people picking sides? Hey, man, I know Barnabas, dude. That guy is like the most loving guy I've ever met in my life. He was there for me. Paul's wrong. And others saying, well, Paul the Apostle, he's called. You know, Barnabas is insubordinate. He needs to just, you know, maybe he doesn't like it, but he needs to follow and just get in line. And you could have a serious faction over this. And you have. You've seen these in your churches. It starts with this little contention, and it turns into a divisive thing. We're told to reject a factious person after a first and second warning, a heretic which is the idea of causing to choose. And you know the type of people that are in your churches that will, they'll say, well, the pastor, you know, he says this, but, you know, there's another way to look at that. And, you know, I think, you, you know, you can look at it this way. And that can be an innocent, just disagreement about something. But if you find people that love to sow that kind of discord, they love to see the other side and they take pride in not just following along with what is taught from the pulpit, but they see another angle and they're always seeing another angle. There's many angles to the triangle as far as they're concerned. There's always something they're going to bring up. How do you deal with them? Well, of course, we're told to keep it between you and them as a rule. Bill Ritchie's going to cover that, I'm sure, in the workshop. But I have a warning about that in one sense. Wolves in your church will appeal to Matthew 18. And the reason they do that is because they want to keep people from comparing notes. They want to keep people in the dark. I've known people that eventually were proven to be known wolves that essentially they're they're very slick they're very you know sharp but they could convince 12 people that they're your best that you're their best friend and they can tell you but you know i'm saying this to only you i wouldn't say this to anybody else and they can get 12 different stories out there they can cause all this confusion in the church and if you talk to somebody else about them you know they'll be quick to invoke matthew 18 so you have to watch that be careful how that can be used now, if there's an issue of sin, it needs to be confronted. Speak the truth in love. But oftentimes, it's a relatively minor issue, even though some might see unforgiveness here in Paul and charge him with that. And some might see insubordination with Barnabas. I think the key is that they kept it between themselves and they came to a conclusion that maybe we wouldn't like. Hey, we hate to see this team break up. But in the end... You know, ultimately, God is, he tells us to be at peace as far as possible with people. And maybe the Holy Spirit of peace can only go so far with us as we give him allowance. So here we are. One of the keys, I think, is limitation. Listen, I, I, when I first started getting into this message, I got to tell you, I was telling others, I said, why don't you just shoot me now? What in the world did I even think that I wanted to cover this topic for? Because you know you're going to be tested on what you go through. And I can't even tell you the, <laughs> the hornet's nest that got stirred up at the church, outside the church, with pastor friends I know. And I'm in the middle of the brouhaha, and I, and, and I made the classic mistake of grabbing the dog by the ears, thinking I could fix it meddling in something that was way beyond me and I came to but one thing during that very painful process I did sift out one very important lesson and that was this is that essentially I have to know my limitations I don't know what I don't know 
And you know, in fact, there was probably a lot more detail in this passage than we even know that the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us between these two guys, maybe that brought them to the conclusion they needed to part. Dealing with a recent contention between two people that I knew, I, again, tried to understand the, uh, both sides and try to, you know, in sense, I thought I was going to try to be a peacemaker, but I made a classic mistake of saying one thing that was construed in a way and it caused this big brouhaha between these two. And man, I tell you what, I learned something. I don't know what I don't know. Sometimes that's enough. To be settled with something, look, I don't know. We have to be honest, listen, in regard to the Calvary Chapel movement, I don't know how many pastors we've got, but we've probably got twice as many opinions about how everything should be played out in the end. When the Lord eventually, you know, moves us to the next generation and a whole new group of people are coming on, what will it be like? Honestly, there's way too much idle chit-chat about in regard to this. And Listen, I just have to come back to this. Listen, we know, it was already said here in the conference, we know what we know, we know him. And we've learned that uh, from Chuck, our motto, it's part of our DNA. Whatever, whatever things we've learned, we know our friends, we know we're going to keep to the mark, let's do it. But I don't know what I don't know about everybody else's business. And so it's not mine to look at. You know, it's interesting, one of the most important assets I believe Calvary Chapel has you know, one, one day if the Lord should take Chuck, and I know he's, I'm praying for another decade before that happens, or two, maybe more. But listen, when that happens, you know, what's going to happen? It goes to me, say, everybody's speculating about this and that. You know, let's, let's talk about the elephant under the table. Come on, we've all discussed that. At the end of the day, isn't the Lord in charge? I don't know what I don't know. And I know one thing. Whatever assets that God has blessed Calvary Costa Mesa with, it pales in comparison to the greatest asset that you have. And that is the influence, the heart, the example, the model that Chuck has set for us by the Spirit of God's work in his life. And that influence has gone throughout the whole world. And it kind of reminds me of what someone, I actually said this to a pastor going up to speak at uh, one of the conferences. I said, man, up to this point, it's been a wonderful conference. Don't blow it. And I have to say, you know, listen, as we, we've seen God work so many wonderful things throughout the world, I still blow my mind. Our radio station actually is, is in the earshot of 12 correctional institutions. And one of those guys in one of those institutions is the son of Sam Murderer. Uh, David Berkowitz, and he listens every day. I know he's written to you, Chuck. He listens every day to Chuck and a lot of the pastors, and he's discipling others. And I mean, he's just one little story of millions of stories out there of God's work. And so up to this point, the Lord has moved among us. Let's not blow it. Let's not get inward. Let's not speculate on things that we shouldn't be involved in. And that's why I look at this, and I'm glad the Lord doesn't give us all the details. I don't know what I don't know. And are you content with that? Because that person who feels they've got to get to the bottom of everything is, in my opinion, not only insecure, but dangerous. And by the way, insecurity and being dangerous are, go hand in hand. Think of Herod. You know, he was so insecure, he was safer to be his pig than his dog or his, uh, his uh, son. Thank you. Just can't make a mistake in a room of pastors. <laughs> They'll correct you on the spot, baby. I love it. Fourth principle here. 
It's really not here, actually. I have to infer some more things here, but Spurgeon, in his lectures to my students, the, the classic uh, you know, uh, message to pastors he gave called The Blind Eye and a Deaf Ear. I'm just curious, how many of you have read that at one point? There's a lot of, few, lot of you here. Listen, if you haven't read that, it is worth the price of the book. It will spare you a lot of unnecessary pain in dealing with sensitive situations that you come across, especially if you're a pastor, stepping into another pastor's shoes, and you've got all of the history that someone wants to graciously inform you of uh, about so-and-so and the Mrs. Grundy down the street who has an issue with the Mrs. other person, Mrs. N, who heard Mrs. K and Mr. K talk about Mr. F, you know, and he, I mean, he goes on in this, it's a brilliant passage, but essentially his whole message is one blind eye and one deaf ear from Ecclesiastes 7.21, which says, listen, if you hear your servant talking behind your back or cursing you behind your back, don't take it to heart, for you know you yourselves have done that. What a great counsel. Don't take to heart. There are people that just can't let something go. They're like little spiders on a web that they feel any little tingle out there and they jump on it. And we need as, and I think you're being very thin-skinned when you do that, you have to sometimes get a thick skin and just, you know, you take your shots and you don't take it to heart. Spurgeon said he used to look forward to this critical letter that would come to him after every Sunday morning sermon. Miss all the mispronunciations and the references and the and the things he made historically inaccurate, you know, everything. And he said he used to look forward to that letter every week. It was his favorite time. See, I think there's wisdom in that, being open. Remember David running for his life from Absalom, crossing the brook, and shimmy eyes over there, mouthing off, you know, cursing him. You bloodthirsty man, you deserve this. And one of his generals says to him, do you want me to go over there and take off his head? Literally. And David says, no, how do I know the Lord has not called him to curse me? You know, I think it's a very important thing as a pastor, and I tell you, this settles more contingents in my, I believe, in our fellowship, is that I want to give people the freedom to not be afraid to come up and approach me about something. And boy, I tell you, in the East Coast, you better have that because they will anyway. I always laugh at the ladies that come out and do women's ministry with my wife, you know, because the Italian ladies, they're just so honest, you know. They'll come right up to these uh, very meek, sweet California ladies and say, you know, that uh, lipstick doesn't fit that, uh, I wouldn't wear that lipstick. And that dress, you know, that's not your color. I can tell, you know, and they'll just tell you. And if you're thin-skinned, you're going to be messed up. <laughs> You've got to just say, thank you, appreciate that. I look forward, actually, you know, I, I appreciate it because, listen, my, my feeling is, I'm on New York radio, and I sound like a country bumpkin. No offense, Sandy. No, I, I'm just saying. That was bad. That was bad. That was bad. I love his accent. But you know, you got to know something about Sandy, is that uh, the love affair that he has with the Braves goes much deeper than you all realize. And uh, I got him to go to a Yankees game one day, and uh, he's such a nice guy. He smooth-talked his way from way up in the bleachers. That's all I could get to coming right on down, talking his way, that sweet southern drawl, all the way down to the front, and uh, he enjoyed, uh, I don't think the Braves were playing that day, though. Sorry. 
But listen, I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I love to be corrected. I mispronounced this word. You know, I must have missed school that day or whatever. I'm thankful for people to tell me. I had a blind guy in our church that was an English major, and every time he would come up to me and he would say, you know, you said this, you said that, you said this. And some of my staff were like really annoyed with him. And I said, no, man, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Point is, look, you haven't resolved every disagreement between you and your wife, let alone the church. Yeah, think about it. You, you've learned to accept certain things about your wife that you don't agree with. How much more within the church? Small-minded people, again, feel they've got to get to the bottom of everything. Recently, someone had uh, you know, the unfortunate experience of finding a website which challenged using the name of Jesus. They thought, and you probably encountered this, that you know the corruption of how we pronounce Jesus is a crime. And it's the mispronunciation, and you know they've got the right pronunciation. And so I actually answered the question, and it got back to me that when I said, well, look, then you might have to correct the whole Greek New Testament because he was Isus in the Greek. And then the, the question came out, well, it wasn't originally written in Greek, and I said, okay, then I'm not even going there. But I have all kinds of contentions. And if you take this stuff to heart, you hold on to it, it'll mess you up. I remember, you know, Chuck, you don't know, well, you probably do know, the, but you really blessed me in this regard, that years ago when before, news, before blogs and before Facebook, before all those other things, there was uh, news groups. And one of the brothers that I was associated with got started this Calvary Chapel news group. We thought it was wonderful to promote some fellowship, but we didn't understand the nature of a news group. Is you can't monitor it, you, and, and anybody can get on there and spew whatever they want. And one of the most vicious enemies of Calvary Chapel dominated the group. And we tried for a year to try to set the record straight and try to appeal to this guy. And he was just, you couldn't, you couldn't deal with him. And I remember just coming up to Chuck and apologizing for having started this group, which you cannot stop once you start it. And, you know, he said, uh, well, it didn't matter. If you didn't start it, somebody else would have started it. You know, just gracious. And, you know, honestly, we're going to experience these types of attacks. Spurgeon in his... Uh, message said something very fascinating he said look we don't have ear lids like we have eyelids so we have to find some other means to stop our ears from hearing things or at least taking them to heart we have to discern the difference between flagrant injustices and just a mere feud between people one thing that stuck in my mind about that message he said a lie is like a fish out of water it eventually flaps itself to death there's going to be lots of scuttlebutt about you. You'll be the talk of the village gossip from time to time. People will be debating whether this happened, and everything gets magnified, and eventually it turns into a, you know, a scandalous uh, thing that someone is, is saying about you. You know, you're messing with the money or you know, the way you looked at women or whatever it might be. And listen, here's the thing. If you take that, and one of the biggest mistakes pastors sometimes make, are they get in the pulpit, they try to clear the air put out the fires. I've learned that it's much better to stoke the true fire than to try to put out all the little fires the enemy starts. Keep stoking the true fire. Because eventually that lie, here's the, here's the thing though, are you able to be thought of as a liar and a thief and a deceiver 
for a period of time while people are trying to sort out whether what they might have heard from somebody is, has any basis in fact. And if you start defending yourself, jumping into it, getting into the fray, and you know, defending yourself from the pulpit and using the pulpit as a bully pulpit, what's going to happen to you? Eventually people are going to say, well, I don't know what happened. Must have something happened because he wouldn't be so upset about it. But you know, when you just keep going forward, and Chuck, you've been a model of this year after year after year, all the stuff that has been said and talked about and debated, you know, Chuck just keeps right with the Word of God, keeps going forward. And when we had a very difficult split in our fellowship some years ago, uh, a guy that was with me for many, many years, won the hearts of a number, and we actually gave him our blessing to start something. We didn't know the undercurrent, the Absalom spirit, and how he undermined. I mean, it was, it was devilishly clever, many of the tactics that he employed and i tell you when it when he was out and eventually was you know he was found out to have all kinds of issues got exposed and you know it all came to nothing and a lot of those people that thought lots of evil things about me came and apologized to me and they said you know we're sorry we we heard this and we heard that and you know and, and you know it was a very subtle way it would be like oh, well it'd be like this if someone were on your board to say to somebody in the church you know, there's a lot of things I see, and I, I, could, I don't really feel comfortable. I could never tell you anything, but just, you know, there's a lot of issues. And now they can say, I never said anything. That sounds so clever, it sounds so, but it's devilish because they're inferring some things that are going on wrong. And he, he was able to sow a lot of that seed. And when he left with 10% of the church, it was with 30% of the income, and it was a, it was a very difficult time. But I remember... The temptation, especially when everything came out and he was exposed, I remember the temptation of, you know, getting out there and vindicating myself. You know what? The Lord, by the wisdom that I gained from Spurgeon in that regard, I didn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And I thank the Lord because he spared me a lot. Because many people came back. And you know what? They've been faithful ever since. So I think a, a lesson here, and you know, the, the sad thing in this division with Paul and Barnabas is that we really don't see them actually any time afterwards come together. We don't know what happened. Some have said very aptly that, you know, if you really are going to choose sides, Paul has the most logical choice because Barnabas went, but Paul was sent. I thought that was very aptly put by Bill Ritchie, you know, in a conversation I had with him. At the end of the day, we don't see them coming back together, except with John Mark being restored, perhaps that was, that was enough. Because if Barnabas had sowed more seeds of, of animosity in John Mark, he probably never would have been useful. So Barnabas must have done something right. question is, as we approach things and need a lot of humility in doing them, who's greater? Imagine two very powerful, wealthy people that own huge estates and huge companies in the billions and one of them lives high in his own little estate and never comes out and mixes with the common people sends out all of his servants and all of his help to deal with all the affairs of life and the other daily puts on normal clothes goes out interacts with people sits with people in his company learns about some of their needs learns about what the things he can do better as a leader who's greater you know, I think the one who condescends, the one who is clothed with humility. Who was it that said difficult people are God's secret agents sent to scour the king's servants? In fact, I love sometimes from getting into a, a middle of a marriage issue 
And I just had one a couple of months ago where a couple really needed to see me. Wouldn't see anybody else. They wanted to see me because they were in the church for a long time. And they came in, and they were like at each other's throats. And after each set their case, and it was over a, you know, a young child from a previous marriage, which is always a challenging one. And, you know, this woman was just livid that this girl had more, you know, sway in his life than she did. And he was like trying to balance out between his ex and see the girl and influence her and his wife. And it was just this animosity. And as I was listening to them go back and forth at it, I started laughing. I thought it was hilarious. And I says, you guys don't even see what I see. I said, you guys are so meant for each other. You have no idea. You are so different. You were so, and, and I began to show each, that in many ways it was each of them had a strength overplayed, which is often the root of many disagreements. You know, the strength overplayed, perhaps here with Barnabas. He is a gracious, wonderful guy, and you need Barnabases in your church. Don't scare them away because they get offended at you if you're not, you know, listening to them about a situation that you feel, they feel you should have been more gracious in. Don't scare them away. Don't count them as enemies. You need them in your church. But you've got to win them. You've got to help them realize. And I had to sit down with a guy in our fellowship that I consider a Barnabas, who's one of our elders. Great guy. I mean, he can scan the crowd in the, in the foyer and see who's struggling and go right up and pray with them. Wonderful guy. But his one strength is often overplayed because He's not just sensitive to where people are. He's, he's, he's sensitive to where all the other leaders are failing to do what they should, should do. And he has an opinion about that. And why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And he's frustrated with these guys. And he's frustrated sometimes with me. And I told him, I said, look, you've got a wonderful gift. Have you ever heard an expression where people are oversensitive? There is no such thing as oversensitive. It's wrongly sensitive. Oversensitive doesn't make sense because if God has given you a gift to be sensitive, the danger is turning that gift inward, applying it to yourself, where you are sensitive about anything that someone is saying about you or about, you know, something that you're dealing with. Rather, use that gift to bless others. So in many ways, I think this is a strength overplayed. Question comes up, though. In most cases, it's more important to be loving than right, no? St. Augustine, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The challenge is, if you win the argument but lose the friendship, then what have you gained? Paul answers the question of someone, you know, taking somebody else to court. says, isn't it rather better to be wronged? You know, it's better to restore a friendship. To go to that person who has issues with you, work it out instead of like hold your ground and sometimes it's just a matter of a personality disagreement. But I'll never forget the lesson I learned as a young pastor dealing with a very couple strong leaders who had strong opinions about everything. And again, this is a nice, you know, gentle California kid coming out to the East Coast with a bunch of very, you know, are you looking at me? I know you're not looking at me. It was a whole different world. It was a culture, you know, uh, you know, paradigm shift in my life. So I remember these two strong leaders that just, I, they were driving me crazy. I remember going to Gail Irwin and complaining. I can't take these guys any longer. They're doing this and this. I, you know, they're driving me nuts. I, I've had it. 
And he just pierced me with one simple question. He said, are you, are they convinced that you love them? Now, I think I might have even shared this before with pastors. And you know what? But it's such a powerful illustration because ultimately, isn't that our job? That we need to make sure that above all things, we are modeling Jesus, that we do care for their souls. And if they are convinced there, then that'll settle a lot of other issues. So I determined I was going to make sure they knew how much I loved them. And you'd be surprised how those, that strife just ceased between us. Once they knew, I cared about them more than about the thing I was doing. Sometimes we, with that vision, like Paul, you know, we can, we can just go 100 miles ahead, and there's going to be a wake of people sometimes that are hurting in the, in the background. And sometimes that's a hard one. But ultimately, it comes down to this. Isn't this a spiritual battle? Don't we have an enemy that seeks to sow discord? Some think, and you've... You know what I'm talking about here. If you have a staff opening and they come for the job and you interview them and you get to know, you know, one of the reasons they're looking for a job in the church is because it's so hard out there in the world. And man, it'd be so wonderful working around a bunch of Christian people. Yeah, you know, you've had that experience. I tell them, go away. You have no idea what you're talking about. It's a whole lot harder dealing with the enemy of our souls sowing discord. You better be walking in the spirit when you come. And essentially, that's what it comes down to. You know, you listen, how do you tell the difference between a wolf and a wounded sheep? Now, a wounded sheep can be pretty loud, can be pretty pushy, can be pretty boisterous, and can draw a lot of attention to themselves. A wolf is usually more subtle, though. And by the way, I, and I stole this from my wife's notes on the subject. It's a great illustration. Have you ever had anybody emotionally throw up on you? You know what I'm talking about? They've stored up for who knows how long everything that you've bothered them about. And they let it all out on one blah. And afterwards, you just feel filthy. You feel like just dirty. You feel like covered with vomit. You've got to remember this one thing. It's people who are sick that throw up. They're not so much to be counted so much as an enemy, but listen, if they were well, they could take each of those issues in stride. They could have handled them one at a time and cleared the air in each one of them, been clarified on a few things, but instead they weren't healthy. They kept a lot of it in, and the poison built up until it eventually the pus just comes out. If you know that, you don't take that personally. You don't take those things to heart. You, can, in fact, love them. Even if they want you to know I'm your biggest enemy now, we say, well, that's okay. I've had people leave disgruntled over this or that. And and as they're telling me why they're leaving the church, I just say, you know what? I'm going to pray you find a great place. But listen, no matter what happens, however you don't like me or whatever, you're always going to be family in my eyes. Once you've been a part of this church, you're part of my family. I don't care what happens. And you know, it's, 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 it's amazing how much that just settles right there. Not that I'm trying to keep them to stay, get them to stay, because usually sometimes by that point it's better that they find someplace else. But I still want them to know. And i got to tell you how many people that have left, gone out, and I'll see them wherever, and it's, you know what, they're my long-lost cousin. That graciousness that I've learned in ministry through Calvary Chapel. Being that peacemaker. Guys, there's so many things we could go on, and my time has almost run up, and I want to come to the most important thing. 
And that is this. In the contention that we have here, eventually, I believe, God does something powerful through Paul, which most of us then would consider it confirms that he was in the right, if that's important to you to know who was right and wrong, because sometimes people can't just accept maybe they were both wrong and maybe they were both right, maybe whatever, but God knows. And maybe where they were then isn't where they are now. So we just have to let those sleeping dogs lie. But there's one thing that sticks in my mind, and it's a similar thing that happened to Moses when there was a contention, where they were frustrated and there wasn't enough water and what, who are you leading us and what's going on. And the question that came up in, in that passage in Exodus 17 is that they tempted the Lord because they questioned, is the Lord among us or not? And, you know, that is a question that has to be settled in order to settle contentions that could turn to factions. People hear stuff, they're confused. What they really want to know, is the Lord among us? Now, of course, they tempted God with that question by challenging Moses in the place of Massa and Meribah. But ultimately, the proof was in the pudding because what did the Lord instruct Moses to do? Go strike the rock once. Water came out. And it ministered to the people and it settled it. The Lord showed his power and settled the issue. And honestly, the most important thing that, happened, that can happen to us is when contentions arise and people begin to doubt whether God is there, they begin to question leadership about this or that, we need to go back to the cross, which is what that rock being struck is all about. And as that applies, that life-giving water, and people's lives are changed, the very demonstration of the Spirit of God settles so many of those issues. And Spurgeon put it this way, your people will forgive you many of your faults and shortcomings if they're well-fed. And when, you, when they're well-fed, they're going to be healthy. And the demonstration of the Spirit of God and power will be upon them. And they'll know the Lord is in it. And they might not understand what happened in that situation. And I, I concluded this recent con contention that happened that I got in the middle of foolishly. Reaching out and reaching out and reaching out. And eventually it was settled by my brother saying, Look, I don't know a lot about the facts and the details and all this stuff. But I do know and I'm certain and sure about our friendship. And I think sometimes, you know, when we know the Lord is in the center of it, that's key. So the key is being filled with the Spirit. Shepherds would often put oil on the horns of the rams during mating season. And though he couldn't stop them from butting heads, with the oil, they glanced off each other. There's no way you're going to stop every contention in the church. You shouldn't try. But man, when you just make sure that you're faithful in feeding the flock and you're faithful and just keep going forward and let all the lies and all the other stuff out there just scurry about whatever and just keep going faithful. And many times people will just be assured and confident by your calmness and your steady going forward and that they must, they'll figure out eventually all that stuff is nonsense. So be filled. In fact, it's one of the evidences of being under the influence of the Spirit is submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Do we see that perfectly with Paul and Barnabas? No, they were but men. They had their issues, and they probably didn't do it exactly the way it could have been done. But at the end of the day, even with our mistakes, even with our failures and our faults, you just keep going forward in the main thing. The Lord will take care of all those other things. Father, how... 
humbling it is to see so many of these things that we just don't understand and can't figure out between people and splits and issues. But Lord, I pray that your Spirit of God would just come upon us. And when we leave this place and go back down in the valleys where we're ministering, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would guide us with that calm assurance. And as we keep being faithful with speaking to the rock now, because it was struck once, and applying and appealing to the cross for forgiveness and grace and power, Lord, that you'd have your way with us. Thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray.